Catherine Jean Lopez from the National Review Institute, and I'm so happy to welcome you on behalf of both NRI and the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C., and I'm so happy to be joined by Charlie Camosi from Fordham University and the author of The Throwaway Society, among other books, who's going to unmute himself right now, and uh, Sister Constance Fight from the Little Sisters of the Poor, also in Washington, D.C., and um, we're here to talk about uh, two issue, the issue that, that both of, of these people spend so much time on, it's Sister Constance's life, um, and that's, that's end of life care and uh, ethics and, and really Christianity, you know, um, particularly in light of the coronavirus pandemic. And, um, you know, we've seen so much death um, and some of it's been unnecessary. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about, I think that one of the mercies of this time um, where we've seen so many challenges and there's been so much fear and insecurity and all of these things is an opportunity to rethink some of what we've been doing. Uh, as Charlie will talk about, no doubt, you know, we've had in some states, including my own New York state, government orders that have um, that that really re resulted in the deaths of people in nursing homes unnecessarily we got to ask ourselves can we do better than than making our elderly go to to all these nursing homes and of course sometimes this assistance is necessary that's why it's such a blessing that sister constance and the little sisters of the poor exist i've spent time at uh, the little sisters home in washington and there is such love there. Um, the people who live there are so loved and you just see the joy, you know, obviously growing old can be very, very difficult. You know, um, we all experience it, you know, wherever we are, you know, um, things don't work quite as well as they used to. Um, you can't stay up as long, you know, these things, but obviously the older you get and the more health challenges you have, um, the harder it is and yet, Sister Constance, you know, when when people are around the Little Sisters of the Poor, they really do radiate, um, you know, the love of God that they receive and that they can can then give. So anyhow, with that, um, Sister Constance, will you start us out talking a little bit about your experiences uh, during this time and uh, and the Little Sisters of the Poor, of course, serve the elderly poor, as I think if you didn't know before two Supreme Court cases, you might know now. Um, what has been your experience like and what, what are some of the lessons that um, you've learned that you think we all should take under consideration uh, as we go forward? Well, Catherine, thank you for having me tonight. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, um, whether it's you know in front of a live audience or just the two of us. Um, it's hard to believe that it's almost a year since this all started. And looking back on that time, I think that um, there was definitely a first phase and then I'll call the second phase, the long haul. The first phase was uh, characterized by a lot of fear and anxiety, a lot of unknown factors, 
Um, and I think that was in large part a cause of the fear and anxiety. You know, it was a very acute situation. And, um, you know, we're going into lot. We went into lockdown in our houses by mid-March. I would say by um, St. Patrick's Day, we canceled our St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Um, you know, we were not taking any more visitors into the house. And not long after that, we were going into real lockdown where our elderly residents had to be isolated in their rooms. About that same time, um, the first of our, we have 24 houses across the United States and the first one experienced an outbreak. It was in uh, Newark, Delaware. And so I was asked to go there and help and ended up staying for two months. I thought that I might be staying for two weeks, but I also thought looking back on it, I know it sounds melodramatic now, but I thought I might be going to my death because it all seemed so um, lethal and so scary, but I was asked to go and help. I'm like, okay, this is my vocation. Um, you know, this is a moment of great need. I felt honored to have been asked. And so I went up there. Um, I must say it was on short notice. So I didn't really put my affairs in my office in order. So uh, I knew it was going to be a mess if I didn't make it back. But, um, you know, I went up there and it, there was a lot of fear and a lot of, um, I think I could say like extreme reactions to things like extreme precautions which I think were necessary, but I think some of it, um, you know, we were in uncharted waters. Um, so we had um, 11 deaths in that home. And at the same time that I was up there, we started having deaths in DC, which, you know, the people in DC, I know very well. So I was missing the deaths of all the people that I know. Um, by Easter for us in these two houses that I, where I experienced it, directly the deaths kind of had had come to an end um and then we entered i would say into this the long haul period where we just have to keep following all the rules um we went into a phase of getting tested weekly we're still in that phase um you know depending on the results from week to week we like here in dc i've been back since the end of may so for the most part, we've been opening up gradually. We had not yet gotten to the point of being able to have inside visitors for our residents, but they were able to leave their rooms. And then two days before Christmas, we had three positive tests in the house. They had to go back into room isolation. They just came out the day of the inauguration. And um, we also got our first vaccine last week. So I, it, it has become somewhat routine. You know, we go for our testing every week. We kind of live in anxiety. Uh, we go on Mondays here. So we live in anxiety for Monday, Tuesday, and usually by Wednesday around noon, we know what the result's going to be. And so, you know, we're just careful. All the hand washing, the wearing masks, just become second nature. Um, yeah. And I have to say, though, through all of it, the, um, the elderly have been extremely patient um, long-suffering and resilient. And that um, has been a beautiful lesson for me to learn, um, to see, you know, I think they're capable of taking the long view more than some of us. Um, you know, they, most of the residents in our homes are in their 80s and 90s. So they've been through World War II. They've been through harder times than this. So they take everything in stride. And that has helped us a lot as well. 
Well, there's a woman you introduced me to, we were talking about the other day, Anne, right? Yes. Who is 102? I believe she's 102 now, yeah. Um, when you had me there, and first of all, uh, you were even more cautious than you remember, remember um, because I was gonna visit um, in uh, very, very early March, and you had stopped letting any visitors come in. Um, and, um, which at the time, you know, I still, I thought, well, that, that seems super cautious. I don't know what, what they think's coming here. It's in China, you know, um, <laughs> but so you're being very careful, but, but pre about a year ago now, actually it was this week. Yeah. You, you were had here around the first July. Right, right. Exactly. So you had me over talking about the year with the mystics book, um, yes. and that I did. And, um, oh my goodness. Your residents are amazing, prayerful people. I mean, it's just a powerhouse of prayer. And some of the things that the, the, some of the people there said to me were just like from the mouth of God. It was amazing. There's really something special about your houses. No question about it. Um, and, uh, and, and I also want to underscore, you're not being melodramatic. That was, that was really a, a beautiful self-sacrificial thing you did to go into, you know, this, this, terrible unknown that you already knew was a bad situation um and so uh thank you we're gonna come it back ended to up not being as bad as my fears but you know you don't know I until don't you're in it how bad right. it's going to be <laughs> right and it, it was like it was like if, so, if somebody decided hey you know in april maybe i'll move to new york city you know who in their right mind would do that <laughs> everybody was fleeing myself included um charlie charlie so you have been writing about this talking about this seemingly non-stop since before most of us realized it was a problem and one of the things that you started talking about very early on and trying to help doctors and other medical personnel with is let's not ration healthcare, you know um and and you know choose who's worth saving or not. You know, obviously prudent decisions need to be made when you have um, limited resources, but, um, but you've, you've been a conscience really for, for medicine, for media, for, for human beings, you know? And so talk a little bit about your experience and insights, lessons from this and biggest maybe concerns and also hopes, if that's enough to talk about. Yeah, well, give me two minutes. Uh, uh... <laughs> First of all, thank you for inviting me, Kalo and Sister Constance. It's a honor to be with you on this call. I have to say, it's one thing for a professor to pontificate on these things. It's quite another to actually um, dive into the fray as you've done. What a what an amazing start to this event by hearing that story. It, it reminds me actually of Catherine, if you don't mind my mentioning our previous conversation where I thought it would be important to mention um, Rodney Stark's um, book, um, The Triumph of Christianity, where he goes through and shows from his point of view, historically, how it was the church's response to the pandemics that actually was at least partially responsible for its growth, the early church's growth. Um, um, and he, he looks actually at, at gravestones and whether they had Christian markers on them before pandemics and afters and shows that there's more after. So it's, it's not an airtight argument, but it's so interesting. And I have to say, the, the church has been uneven, let's say, in its response, in my view, to the pandemic, uh, but not the Little Sisters. Thank God uh, for you. And thank God for them in, in particular, because they show us how to live out what I like to call, what Pope Francis calls a culture of encounter and solidarity and hospitality. Uh, even in this very difficult time. 
but that's what I think the pandemic revealed. In some ways, uh, the pandemic has done us a favor because it's it's highlighted um, how throwaway culture was functioning with this population even before. So sure, our illustrious governor here in New York, uh, you know, essentially started a COVID fire in nursing homes by putting COVID positive patients back into nursing homes in ways that were unconscionable. And that's its own problem of the pandemic. But it must be said that what actually has been revealed about how we warehouse and leave old people to die, um, it was, was, I guess, could have been widely known, but just wasn't or wasn't focused on maybe is a better way of talking about it. The pandemic, I think, has helped us focus on this. And what, what we've learned is not pretty. And not every place is like a little sisters of the poor house, of course. In fact, I was just looking for this article I saw yesterday in Skilled Nursing News, the headline of which is, as lawmakers mull nursing home reform, how do we fix a system that's seen as a fate worse than death? <laughs> Question mark. Mm -hmm. um, that's not true, of course, of every uh, nursing home or every uh, uh, care home, but it is true of a number of them, uh, more than we should. Um, the church does a better job than most. In fact, I got a nice email from the head of Catholic Charities after I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, saying, hey, we do this really well and you should write about us. And, and that's true. And so it's it, there are good places. But one of the things we learned um, is that uh, quite apart from COVID actually, a, a very large number of people died in nursing homes, just a straight up no chaser neglect. Um, and the AP did an amazing, actually investigative report of this. I encourage any of you to look it up. Um, Politico also looked in particular at how people with dementia um, fared during the pandemic, um, both inside and outside of nursing homes. There, uh, they found that 12,000 more people with dementia died, not of COVID, just died period uh, this summer than the previous summer. And we don't know, we don't totally know why, but I think we can make some strong guesses that this is also likely due to some kind of um, neglect, uh, which we might attribute to throwaway culture. And it's gonna get worse from here. I think I'll finish with this with these two points. Um, uh, the, the numbers of people with dementia are going to explode over the next several uh, years, um, especially as people get older. And there doesn't seem to be a cure on the horizon for this kind of thing. And so there seem to be two different options we can take. Um, one of them is really, really bad. And that's the, um, the increase in the temptation to use physician-assisted suicide as a way through these, these kinds of issues. In fact, during the pandemic, it was so interesting and heartbreaking to see, maybe some of you saw the case in the Netherlands of the person who had requested physician-assisted suicide before she had like uh, late stage dementia. And then once she had it, she said three different times she did not want to go through with the physician-assisted suicide. And her doctor went through with it anyway. Um, and then the doctor was put up on charges uh, or was, was one, there was a legal process to see if she would be put up on charges and she was not charged with anything. So I can really see a future. It's not too hard, in fact, to envision a future where if you see this as a fate worse than death um, and you see being warehoused in this place where you don't have anything like what the little sisters offer, that maybe this could be something you'd think, well, this is not what I want, but I can't imagine this other thing, this other fate coming my way. The other thing, which is only slightly less better in my view is, and it may sound futuristic, but I don't think we should think of it as futuristic, is, is what I call the slouch towards robots. I, I, think, I think we're gonna look at this population as a throwaway population and, and go either in one direction or the other. 
based on where we are right now. Um, there all <laughs> there are alternatives, of course. We can live out what the sisters are doing, um, but but if nothing is done, I think really those are the two two ways we're going to go. If this if what's been revealed during the pandemic is indicative of what's going to happen in the future. Well, Charlie, I think too. You know, when Cuomo did what he did. There's an ideological consistency to what he did. Um, and that's one of the things I found most alarming. I, I, don't, I don't think he said, let's kill elderly people with COVID, but I do think there, they would be less of a priority. That, that is logically consistent with, with um, someone who had already uh, vowed to, uh, to bring assisted suicide to New York. Yeah, that's one of the things that disability rights groups, along with pro-lifers, say every time that this is brought up is once you start giving reasons for why, hey, it might be, we could kind of understand why you over there would want to kill yourself. You send a not so subtle message about what kind of life is valuable or, or what kind of lives, maybe a better, more precise way of saying it is what kind of lives are more valuable than other lives. And uh, it, it just became a situation and Cuomo was not the only one. In fact, I think he probably, if we want to give him the benefit of the doubt, took some really bad advice from a medical director or something, because what the, what the concern was, was that they needed to keep the hospitals open right. Right? Um, and, 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 not, and not full. Um, of course, to great fanfare, there was the mercy ship that came in and they had the convention center open. They never used any of those spaces, but yet they still, still under the pretense of, trying to keep a uh, hospital space open sent, like I said, lit a wildfire of infection in nursing homes. And I think there was a sense like, well, that li there had to be at least an implicit sense that, that those lives didn't matter as much as the lives that would be presumably affected by having the hospitals full. Right. Um, as a sidebar, you mentioned throwaway society. And this morning I actually took a picture of it amazes me about the amount of trash that we accumulate and i've never told you this before i'm pretty sure charlie but every time i see garbage i think of you <laughs> talking about this <laughs> and i i couldn't send you the picture because i hate sharing anything ugly <laughs> but but it, it and it, it reminds me of the importance of you know i mean trash is one thing right but you know, why are we using all this stuff? And it's all, it's all wrapped up, right? There are elements that are more important, obviously, than others, but um, we need to start thinking differently. Sister Constance, can you remind me, there was a, that lovely priest who, who lived in your home, who died early on because he had so many health problems. Mm -hmm. Can you tell um, the, the audience a little bit about him. I, I was, I remember when I met him, I was just so moved by his story, a black Catholic priest. Yes. Who, I'm gonna butcher the story, so you tell it. <laughs> okay, well, Father Charles Green was an African-American priest in the Archdiocese of Washington. He was a late vocation. I believe he might've had 25 years or 30 years of ordination. Um, he had multiple health problems. He was an amputee and had to go for dialysis three times a week, but he really had a strong desire to live. And he tried to be, you know, carry out his priestly ministry during his long hours in dialysis. Um, he, he told us the story that, so the, he was a delayed vocation because he was a native of DC, grew up in DC, never saw a black priest, 
And so it never occurred to him that he could become a priest. He was a lifelong Catholic. Um, and it was working in um, Charles Manor, which is Carol Manor, which is um, a long-term care facility run by um, the Daughters of Charity as part of Providence Hospital, which has closed now, but Carol Manor is still open. He was assigned as an orderly to take care of elderly priests. And it was elderly priests who opened his eyes to the possibility of a vocation. But he was very beloved here. He helped uh, various residents and a few employees come back to the church. Um, but in a sense, he was like a sitting duck for COVID because, um, you know, he was, he couldn't survive without going to dialysis three times a week. And so in a sense, you know, it was probably only a matter of time. And he was one of the early um, residents who died and he died in the hospital, unfortunately, because when he would, you know, it's always a danger of anybody on dialysis is um, acquired infections. And so, you know, he came home with a temp, he had to be transported to the hospital and then he was never able to come back. Uh, but he was a lovely person, a really lovely person. Everybody, everybody misses him. I only got to spend a little time with him, but I was uh, horrified in a sense when he told me he thought he couldn't be a priest um, yeah. because he was he was black. And um, but what joy he he was not bitter about that at all. Yeah. And um, and I remember him telling me how it it really bugged him that there would be like these Catholic university girls who would come over and volunteer, but none of them went to church. And so he tried to like charm them into yeah. um, uh, going, going back to the faith of their parents, you know? And um, anyway, I thought he deserved a mention because he's an example of, of the kind of uh, people who, who uh, one would meet in, in your home if it was normal times. Yeah, I mean, the, sad, the sad thing was like, he was very beloved. He, his former parishioners still came and celebrated his birthday with him every year with an outdoor mass that he would celebrate and a picnic. And, you know, because of the um, precautions that were required um, in the early months of COVID, he passed away because he had a very, um, how should I say, off the beaten track funeral. You know, I think he did have a funeral, but um, certainly all those who loved him were not able to go to it and mm. to, you know, um, have celebrate his life and have closure. That was another hard part of, of the whole thing um, in the early months was the lack of closure for those who were, um, who were dying, you know, for their families, for other people they left behind um, was tough. It was just like, well, they're gone, you know? Right. right. Yeah. And um, we were, we were, well, Charlie, you mentioned earlier, you know, the unevenness in, in the church response. You know, there was a, a time where you were hard pressed to be able to get, and this was the church, the, the hospitals too, get priests into hospitals to give people, uh, to anoint people. Um, and um, I, I've heard that's a problem still some some places. But Sister Constance um, was talking yesterday when we were having a phone call about tonight, um, there were groups of priests who, you know, in the Archdiocese of Boston, for instance, I know a Dominican who they just, they isolated themselves and this was gonna be their job. They were gonna go in and anoint COVID patients. So they wouldn't infect anybody else. This would be what they do. And um, thanks be to God for that. But it was, it seemed few and far between. Um, I hope, you know, the more, um, the more time passes, we'll find out more about 
the good stories. Um, but there were definitely, um, there were definitely some, some really terrible situations. Well, and I, we shouldn't I think have had. Been, um, so I found articles about the Archdiocese of New York. I forgot about that one yesterday. Um, Boston, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and then a story from Rome. But I would hope that um, the, the experiences of those pastoral teams, those teams of priests, like the article about from Boston was written in October and none of, as of October anyway, none of the priests who served in this capacity had contracted COVID and they hadn't, so they also hadn't been responsible for giving anybody COVID. So I would hope that if this continues, God forbid, um, that those experiences could be instructive for the larger, the bigger picture that there are ways to still go in and safely minister to people. You know, we, I would hope that we're over this fear of the unknown, very extreme response phase and can step back a little bit and think some of these things through and realize, you know, we don't have to be as drastic about some things, that there are safe ways to, um, meet the spiritual needs of um, Catholics and, you know, most likely other believers, you know, of other faiths, that there are ways around of, you know, training. Um, these priests were really well trained. They were well supplied with PPE. They had um, very specific procedures, like for, um, there's a video from the priest in Boston showing how he would put, he would prepare Q-tips ahead of time with the oil of anointing into plastic bags. And he had the anointing prayers on little pieces of paper because everything he brought into a room would have to be disposed of after. So they showed that where there's a will and some intelligence, there's a way. And so mm -hmm. hopefully if this does go on for much longer, you know, that others can, can learn from those examples and be ministering to people more actively than we saw in the you know, past, in the past 10 months. Charlie, I think some of, um, you know, another way that, that COVID has been a mercy maybe is it's exposed our unbelief in some, some respects, you know, um, uh, in particular, the fact that we kind of, you know, at first we had no idea what we were dealing with. I think the church was good good citizen to say, you know, um, obligation lifted for mass on Sunday, right? Um, but it went on too long. And, um, and I, I hope there's not a comfort level with watching mass on Zoom, you know, and like Sister Constance was saying, I mean, I, when I go to mass, I, I'm nowhere near anybody, you know, um, we're taking precautions. And, but the fact of the matter is people need their spiritual needs uh, care, taken care of too. And the, the idea, it horrifies me that liquor stores are open and churches aren't, you know, you're, it's like you're begging for people to have addiction, right? Um, and uh, talking about suicide, assisted suicide as, as we were earlier, there's been so much, such an increase in suicide, calls to suicide, hotlines, people thinking about how they'll kill themselves. The church 
needs to, and when I say the church, I'm not saying bishops go do this. I'm saying all of us, right, um, need to rethink. And I know you're thinking a lot about this. Rethink how we we approach the world and our lives. And as we were saying before, even just how we we care for our families. And, and this is related to a question that that um, one of our viewers has has asked. A culture of encounter to me reads as show up, just show up for the people in your life and community. COVID restrictions have seemingly made this impossible for so many, especially the elderly who are so desperately need people to show up for them. How do we actually weigh the risks of COVID versus the risks of neglect, loneliness, suicide? What can I as an everyday citizen do to help that goes beyond politics? Charlie, do you wanna? <sighs> like all really, really important questions. It's so complicated and we could easily have a semester long course um, trying to explore the different complexities there. So I'll just name a, a few things that might be helpful to begin to start thinking about that really, really important question. First is we're not utilitarian. So we're not in the business of saying, well, let's add up all quality adjusted life years and do whatever maximize the number of quality adjusted life years we'll save in any given moment. That's what the NHS does actually in the UK, trying to figure out what, what they're going to do with various procedures and how they're gonna spend money. But that's not especially what Christians do. Um, we have a much more complex thing. It's not like a math problem for us. We have to balance certain goods. And obviously the good of life as any pro-lifer will say is if, if not paramount, like about as important as we could possibly get. But there are other things we need to weigh like Sister Constance when she thought she was perhaps going to her death, she weighed the good of her life against the other good she was going to bring to those people she was serving. When priests, uh, one, of the, one of the most moving parts, I think we need to, so I hope somebody writes a book in English about how Northern Italy dealt with their um, mm -hmm. pandemic at the very early part of this. There apparently were just a lot, a lot of priests who died in Northern Italy and it's interesting to think about why. We don't necessarily know why, but again, if we if you use our common sense, apparently a lot of priests put themselves in situations where they got COVID and died in Northern Italy during the early stages of the pandemic. That's terrible. That's a tragedy that should not be sought out or anything. Right. But yet it's, it's something that I think is heroic and we should point to. These priests wanted, it wasn't just a horizontal set of goods. There were a vertical or eternal set of goods they were concerned about and we should do everything we can. And the, the example Sister Constance named of these archdioceses that are doing it right, those should be replicated. We should not put priests in danger or put priests in a position to spread COVID. But at the same time, I think we need to acknowledge there are multiple kinds of goods here, as you, as you mentioned. Another one that I think we need to call out is, and it's related, but it's slightly different, is how many people died alone during the pandemic? This yeah. was a big, big issue for, for me and for many others. Yes, I guess you could say if you were just doing a utilitarian calculation about spread, it, um, maybe you could shave a few tenths of a percent off the chances that somebody would spread it if their, their family was allowed to say goodbye to them or something. But, but that's such a monstrously important good, right? To be able to say goodbye to your loved ones before you die. I just don't see how you even, I think it's a category mistake to, to have some kind of calculation about how that might work. And, um, and, and, and so, again, we need to do things smartly. And, and if we do go through this again, as we go through this again, and there will be another pandemic, right, we should prepare for how we do this in the future safely. 
but just the, 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 I mean, it just breaks my heart in two to think about how many people lost loved ones without being able to say goodbye to them. And, and I, again, we could have a semester long course about how precisely this would work and how it would deal with public policy and religious freedom and all sorts of things. But, but let's get to that complex place instead of seeing it as, again, like a math problem or something that, that is fairly easy to, to deal with. It's not, it's simply not. And when we talk about, you know, there, there are different layers, there are different elements to all of this. Um, you know, when I talk, when I say, you know, this exposes our unbelief to some regard, you know, there was an element where there was this extreme fear and, you know, what are we afraid of? <laughs> you know, are we afraid of dying? That's a problem. We're all going to die. And I have friends, one of my best friends died um, on All Saints Day and it wasn't COVID. It was leukemia. People have been dying of other things, you know? Um, and uh, so I, I think that's something that really needs to be an examination of conscience for us. Like, why did we, why were we in shutdown? Are we trying to escape death here? And I'm not saying again, to be reckless or anything, um, but, um, but do we really believe that Christ <laughs> died for our sins and was resurrected and there's eternal life um or or do we not and, th and then the other question is and i know you think about this a lot charlie is do we have to just rethink so much i mean first of all yes are we taking care of our loved ones um i, I think a fundamental question you know saints tell us is love right jesus told us i mean so when you're weighing all those goods you know love you know i mean we and the the other thing um about not being able to say goodbye i've heard you sister constance before um on, on panels with me talk about the amazing things that can happen in families at the end right and i've seen it in my own life um um being in at the bedside of someone dying right um, just like miracles happen sometimes, not appealing in uh, in the health term way, physical way, um, but but in re reconciliations and, and things. Mm -hmm. um, could you just talk to me about that for for a moment, Sister Constance? Yes. Well, yeah, you know it's a tradition of our of um, my congregation, the Little Sisters, that under normal circumstances we keep a twenty four hour vigil with residents who are dying. So once we, we recognize that they've entered the dying stages, and I don't mean just like in the next hour, I mean, you know, that death is imminent within a couple of days, say. Um, we take turns to stay with them 24-7, and our staff come and go, other residents come and go in their rooms, and we allow the families to be there as much as they wish to be. And so, so you know, that's, I would say more often than conversions among the residents um, in today, back in the day, we hear stories about dramatic conversions of, of the elderly who were like bank robbers and, you know, were some pretty shady characters. But um, more often than not, it's conversions or reconciliations among the family members gathered at the deathbed. Often enough for the elderly, when they're dying, they're, they would give the appearance of being asleep. You know, more often than not, they get to a point where they're not fully conscious. 
and they're usually not in terrible dramatic pain like you see in movies or TV. They're just kind of slowly petering out. So they're not actively communicating, but the family is communicating, um, you know, in the room. And sometimes they're asking us questions or staff members and an awful lot of very rich, spiritually and emotionally laden um, sharing and encounter goes on. Talk about a culture of encounter um, in those hours and days. And, you know, the, the very tragic thing about COVID was that at least for many months, that was all eliminated. You know, um, I saw in Delaware in those early days that the closest anybody could get was, you know, through a phone or um, there was one nursing unit there, one wing of rooms that are on the ground level. So families could come and try to peer in through the window, but the lighting was such, you know, and the material of the windows that you didn't see a whole lot and the dying person couldn't really see out the window, you know, um, the glare or whatever. And so that was pretty limited. So that was really difficult um, to, for the families just, and even for us, you know, it's part of closure for us as well that we go through that whole process when a person is very close to death um, during the day, hours of day, we'll, we'll send out a call and all the sisters will come to a room and we'll sing and we'll pray. Um, you know, so we weren't doing that. We were having maybe one sister praying in the doorway when PPE. And so um, an elderly person might not have even been aware that she was there. You know, usually under non-COVID circumstances, we would be sitting at the bedside. There, there's a lot of touch that goes on. And all of that was, of course, impossible. So, you know, those are the very important human, human elements. And, you know, I just have to wonder, um, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So we did what we had to do in each circumstance. And as, as things were constantly evolving and, you know, our superior general consistently said to us, please do whatever the civil authorities are asking of you, whatever the health authorities are asking, do it. So we weren't going to, you know, um, buck the system, so to speak, but hopefully going forward, there would be a greater understanding of each individual human being as a unity of body, mind, and spirit, and that it's not only a matter of treating the body, but also the spirit, and also that for each sick person, there's a circle of significant others, family or friends surrounding them that also need to be considered for sure. I just want to say as a not little sister of the poor that I could be, I'm sorry. You could be. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think I'm more valuable to you. uh, Not, not there. (laughs) Um, I think there's a danger sometimes when we listen to someone like sister Constance, who's on the front lines and who has given her life to God and, and this work, his people, uh, to think, oh my goodness, that's so, that's so laudable. That's so amazing. She's a saint. And I'm not saying she's not a saint, 
but she's a human being <laughs> who answered a call <laughs> and she has all the same struggles, obviously with the within the context of a convent that the rest of us have. And I think that's important because she is our credibility, <laughs> you know? And more of us need to be not only talking about what they're doing, but supporting them in whatever way we can support them. If it's financially, if it's being by being a writer who talks, writes about them, you know, or, or talks about them in these platforms. Um, but this is a huge problem we have. And there are people who have dedicated their entire lives to being the solution and we have to support them. And, um, and it's a problem if we don't support them. And there aren't young girls knocking down the door to do this work because it's not pretty work. But it's beautiful work if you look at it from who we are and what what who who we're supposed to be, and so we should be encouraging girls to look into being a little sister of the poor. It's um it's really important, and I think we've lost in our culture, you know, in our Catholic culture, the encouragement of vocations like we used to. Um, and um, so anyway, thank you for what you do. Um, but, but I thank you, want our audience, to know that you're a human being. Thank and you not, for the saintly superhero but you know i would add that um not that we've ever seen an influx of vocations after um grandma or great grandma dies but it is touching sometimes that some people who seem so far away from the practice of the faith are um walls come down in these intense circumstances of accompanying a dying loved one and you know it's hard to put into words, but it's just like their hearts are opened in those. It's a very intense situation of grace. And so people who have been away from family, estranged from family and, and away from the church for many years, you know, I can't say that, yes, they're completely turned around and it, and it has a very lasting effect, but um, they, their hearts are opened. You know, it doesn't take it's not rocket science. It's um, just the love that they see. It's also very touching to families when they see how much their loved one was loved by the other residents, by the staff. And, you know, I do think that there are lasting changes in people's hearts from experiencing, um, you know, this life and death situation. And some of the best, um, spokespersons for us have been the sons and daughters of residents who have passed away and they're just so grateful for you know they might not have been too attuned to the care of the dying or the elderly until it was their own loved one and then it's a life-changing experience and they become great long you know lasting friends of ours so that just goes to show that people's hearts um, are susceptible maybe of being opened, um, you know, in these moments of grace. Well, and what's striking to me too, I, I said earlier that what uh, a powerhouse of prayer I've observed there, the prayers are largely for the conversion of their children. Yes. Um, so, so it bears fruit sometimes during their lives because, mm -hmm. because of uh, God, God's work through you, you know. Charlie, what are um, you know, some of, of the thoughts that you have going forward 
about how we can do uh, big things differently. You know, I know you, you, you've even personally, you know, thought about some big things you might be able to do that are not writing books. You know, we need to be thinking that way. Yeah, I mean, if I'm honest, halfway through the pandemic, I thought maybe I need to drop everything and open up a nursing home. Right. Um, right. Right. That's um, real. <laughs> I, I, really I, I, I've had serious conversations with my pastor about. Um, a convent that is almost empty and, and what are we going to do with it? Uh, you know, are we going to lease it out and make some money? Are we going to, what are we going to do with it? And I've, I've made a strong case that we can, could we create um, and fundraise for a, for a care home that actually created a, a culture, helped create a culture of encounter and hospitality, maybe over multiple generations. There's a school which also closed in our, on our home parish grounds and is being leased out. Um, I've even had some crazy ideas about like, could we have intergenerational um, interactions uh, that the church would host, right? From people who are, who are in need of caregiving or education on, on, on multiple levels. It's one of the great tragedies, of course, of, of the church, at least in some, several places in the United States, that we have a lot of these empty buildings. Um, what, what can we do? How can we post-pandemic uh, perhaps retool the buildings or, 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 or make space um, uh, for 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 uh, for a culture of encounter and hospitality with respect to vulnerable populations, those are big ideas. There, there are smaller things that all of us can do. Um, we're we, we're one of the things we could do, perhaps, is, and I'm guilty of this myself. I grew up in a little town in, in Wisconsin. I I now live in New Jersey and work in New York. Uh, maybe we don't always follow the call to adventure so far away from our families, right? Maybe maybe. Um, Maybe there's a mixed blessing when your family encourages you to go anywhere and do anything and be anyone, which is a kind of a peculiarly American 20th, late 20th century kind of way of thinking about it. Maybe we ought to think, especially in an age, um, for better or for worse, of Zoom and YouTube, uh, we can think more about um, staying in a particular place, in a particular area and building and putting down roots and building up communities so that even in our own homes, we can take care of our loved ones. Now, there are people who need specialty care at the end of life, of course, but one of the things I'm struck by is how many immigrants uh, come to the United States and say, wait a minute, where are you gonna put your mom and dad again? And like, how is this gonna work? And you're never gonna see them and wait, you're moving across the country. You're gonna pay someone else to take care of them. That's not what we do in my, you know. So, so I don't know, maybe there's a, moment here post-pandemic where we say we've kind of overturned the log and what we've seen underneath the log is not good we, we haven't really looked at it before but now we're looking at it and we make intentional choices both in our own personal lives um, but also as a church and I think your big thinking is not crazy at all you know I think not. Catholics need to be thinking um, more about I mean Catholic investors you know there are properties that the church would love someone to take off their hands right now you know um, you know could investors get together and and um, you know good Catholic people who happen to have money um, and and start something um, you know that the idea that the institutional church needs to do all of this, shouldn't be and it can't be sustained any longer especially when you don't have sisters teaching in the schools anymore at, to, at the same level as they used to that means money right that means uh health that means all these things um so there should be some dream big dreams here that that people uh start to think about there's a comment um uh, that i think is um is uh is a great one 
Um, going back to what you said about fearing death, I think there's an element of tr control that as people, we struggle to give up that control. And with COVID, we seemingly have some type of control over whether we can get exposed to this virus. And of course, I think people sort of were losing their minds a bit because they couldn't control, right? I wonder how much that plays into how we have responded to this pandemic. And that on a spiritual level, our church needs to reinforce that giving up control is good. <laughs> um, sister, you wanna speak to that for a moment? Well, I mean, I when you spoke of that, I thought immediately of the, um, the Irby and Orby, the holy hour that our Holy Father had on March 27th, it was, right? And he spoke about that, about the illusion of being in control and how this has, you know, forced us to realize that we're not in control. And um, yeah, like our lives are always in God's hands. I almost said ultimately, but they're always in God's hands. And it's just that we're not always thinking in those terms. The elderly do help us to be mindful of that. And um, yeah, I think one advantage of not pushing the seniors in your life away is to be close to them and some of their wisdom can rub off on those of us who are younger. Like I've been um, engaging with seniors since I was 15 years old. And I just realized that they've really formed my perspective on so many things and, you know, to see the long view and to just have a greater realization that our lives are in God's hands. And yes, we do what we should do. We follow common sense, but just as like I was driving from DC up to Delaware, you know, thinking to myself, well, this could be my end. Um, you know, if that's what God's asking of me. Yeah. But just, to be more aware of God's place in our lives. And I, and I do think that, um, you know, I, I think there's been fear, but I think for other people, they've grown in that awareness, you know, um, and grown closer to the Lord. And um, yeah, I've talked to, you know, people, whether they're our staff members or people I know from different walks of life, you know, who have just become more aware of how precious life is. Um, yeah, and how God is really in control in the end. I mean, in the day-to-day, -day, it's nerve-wracking for us in a nursing home because, you know, we can plan all we want, but when the test results come back every week, like, you don't, I think my most devastated moment was December 23rd, two days before Christmas, and we're told everyone has to go back into lockdown. It was like unbelievable that this could happen. That was my worst scenario for Christmas that we'd have the residents back in lockdown and it came true, but life goes on and you have to just go with the punches and, um, you know, this too shall pass. If, if God gives the grace that you need at the moment, um, you know, and like very much December 23rd, I really had a low point And then I just said, okay, get over it. You know, if you sit in your office and sulk, that's not going to do anybody any good over Christmas, you know, get out there and do, do what you can do. Well, there is this real danger. I was very concerned as, as we approached the new year, the number of people who are saying 2021 will be over it. And all the talk of going back to normal, 
we shouldn't go back to normal. Just the other day, I had I had an overreaction to some big noise. I thought the building I was in was going to blow up or something. And but the the, the good thing about my being crazy was that I had the thought that I am not ready to die right now. And we have to be ready to die. If we're not ready to die, get yourselves a confession, which I did, and now I have to go again anyway. But um, you know, we need to be prepared because we never know when um, the time will be. And, um, and so COVID should have us living differently. Um, there's a very direct question that someone asked um, to, to help focus as we're about to wrap up. What is the biggest lesson the church and the state should take away from this pandemic, Charlie? There's a button that you should press that would give you the perfect answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> immediately. <laughs> it's the mute button chart now. <laughs> oh, it's a great gift as a professor, I have to say. Um, no, uh, I mean, I, at the risk of repeating something I've already said, I, I guess, well, I mean, let, I guess let me build on what we were just talking about. Um, my next book uh, is out coming out this summer and it's focusing on how the secularization of medicine, which has had such a profound impact on the broader culture um, on so many of these things, has really like put our death denial into hyperdrive because of course, contemporary medicine, which is consumerist in nature and achieving on a horizontal scale in nature doesn't really know what to do with death. When death comes, um, that's when you call, uh, you know, in the priest, right, or 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 or, or other person. Um, th that's when the physician leaves, right? That's when the physician goes away, um, and especially the specialists go away. And uh, a, a denial of death and a and a an intentional uh, culture who pushes death to the margins outside of where we normally see death. Um, has led to a bunch of so many of these problems, in fact. Again, there will always be people who need uh, specialized care that we won't be able to provide in the homes. But that we, we, well, one of the things that makes it possible for us to die death is that we don't have it in our homes. We don't see people die at home. And I talked just to my stories about my mother, and they, it was a common thing for people to die at home. And death was something that um, people experience on a regular basis. They, they witnessed death. They saw dead bodies. They prayed. Um, they had gatherings of family and friends on a regular basis. Um, so I think there's, there's real wisdom about not, not only treating people at home and keeping them in your, in your space so that there can be a genuine culture of encounter uh, along the lines we've already talked about. There's something just about facing the reality of death, both as a culture and as individuals that I think would put us in a very different place, not just in our own, you know, COVID related set of questions we've been doing this, but as, as Kayla mentioned, as, as human beings, as Christians who, who should be thinking about our death um, every day. Well, and I'll add on the state issue, we um, made a very bad mistake when we uh, allowed it to be kind of accepted that religion isn't as essential as going to the grocery store or some places there were crazy things that acupuncture and nails and you know would open up before church Tattoos. yeah and so um religion is essential <laughs> and um for you know catholics in particular have an obligation you know do we really believe in the real presence or not i I was 
crazy because I could not be present for the mass. And I contend to this day, if you told me that I could be at mass, but not receive the Eucharist, I would sign up for that because I needed to be present for the consecration. It's like, there's all this awful stuff happening in the world. I need to go to Jesus. If we believe in the real presence, virtual mass doesn't cut it. And um, we have to make that clear. Um, and I think that would be such an encouragement. And you don't do it in a, a negative kind of way, an encouragement to priests to know that the people really believe in the real presence. It might renew their own, you know, uh, belief in the in the real presence. Um, so yeah, the religion is essential. Um, and and that that will have so many different effects, um, I think, in, in our culture. And we have we have um, four minutes. So Sister Constance, um, biggest lesson from church for the church or the state or both? Well, if you don't mind, I would like to read some a, part of a statement that Sister, Archbishop Thomas Wenski wrote. Um, he was applauding the um, HHS Office of Civil Rights and Roger Severino, its director, for having resolved some lawsuits um, against a couple of medical centers. One was Mount Sinai in New York and then MedStar um, Hospital um, System in Maryland, DC and Maryland. And he, they were, there were lawsuits brought because clergy were not allowed into hospitals during COVID. And this is what um, he says that uh, Roger Severino and the OCR helped to resolve these cases. And he said, Jesus Christ, physician of our souls and bodies, gave us the sacraments to convey God's grace and healing. As Pope Francis has noted, the sacraments are Jesus Christ's presence in us. Without them, we're distanced from God, the source of our being and meaning. So it is of paramount importance that our government, public health authorities, and healthcare providers strive to respect the liberty of the faithful to receive the sacraments. Um, medical experts play a natural role in this COVID-19 effort, but must avoid treating physical interactions in religious exercise as unnecessary or unacceptable risks because they are religious. A true understanding of human well-being accounts, as Jesus did, for the health of both body and soul. And so I guess that would be my parting words to have a greater understanding that a true understanding of human well-being accounts for the health of both body and soul. Charlie, any last words? Uh, can I just leave it there? That was just perfect. That was just perfect. Well, thank you everyone who joined us. Thank you to the Catholic Information Center for co-hosting this with the National Review Institute. Um, I would recommend that um, you go to CICDC.org, um, NRinstitute.org. Um, you know, we've been trying at NRI, we've called it virus-free programming um, when we can't gather in person. Um, and honestly, it actually has meant that we can reach out to more people than when you actually have to get people into seats, you know? So, so there are some blessings in all of this as much as we miss being able to meet in person. Um, but um, please also uh, follow the work that Charlie Camosi does. Um, I don't recommend generally people going on Twitter, uh, but if you go on Twitter and follow certain people, Charlie is one you should, you should follow. Um, and um, Sister Constance, uh, thank you. Um, 
for for all of the work that the little sisters of the poor you've you've had to fight for religious liberty you've had to save people's lives like is there nothing we're not going to ask you to do <laughs> um, and well, of thank course, you for I, your support Catherine. well thank you for what you do and and again i i, I recommend that you go to the, the little sisters of the poor website and and think about pray about is there some uh, some way you can you can help them help support them financially or or um educating people hey you know if you're on facebook posting pictures of you know um your zoom call today why don't you post something about the little sister of the poor too maybe share this video you know